Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly, and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So super excited with our guest today. You know, he's one of a kind, you know, born and raised in New York. I mean, you don't see many of those nowadays, but uh, but I think that we're going to be quite learning a bit. You know, he's uh, the way that he experienced and learned about entrepreneurship, then went into the financial service world and, and did different, you know, like type of angles and perspectives in it. Uh, and then that led him really into, into the company that he's building today. And I think that you're all going to find it very exciting. So I guess... Without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Everett Cook. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So, so tell us about your upbringing in New York, because I mean, I, I do, I've, I've met very little people that have been born in New York and that stayed in New York all their lives for whatever reason. I don't know why is that, but I guess that makes you <laughs> one of a kind, Everett. I don't know. There's a bunch. There's a handful of us out here. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, I grew up. I grew up in New York. Yeah, I love this city. I spent most of my life here. I, I started out, um, uh, you know, New York is an amazing place because you're exposed to so much at a young age, which can be terrifying for parents. I have a two and a half year old, so I definitely feel that, but, uh, but it's also, there's also a blessing there, which is, you know, you get exposure to just, just incredible people doing incredible things, um, you know, from basically day one, I was really fortunate for that to happen to me. My, my first real job was, uh, you know, was working for, for Mayor Mike Bloomberg, uh, at his company on his campaign and then in city hall. And that was an inspiring opportunity for me. I was about 15 years old when that happened, um, initially. And, uh, just to be able to see, you know, what someone could build, what one person can build. And yeah, he is obviously an outlier of outliers, but, but just to be able to see that that is possible, maybe the odds are low, but it is certainly possible to, to make something a massive scale from nothing. And that really stuck with me. Uh, that was like kind of like one of the, I think the best things about growing up in New York was, you know, you, you see that up, up close and personal. Um, I was able to, um, you know, from, from a very early age, I was inspired to just try, try stuff as an entrepreneur. Um, I tried starting a web hosting company uh, with, with a good friend of mine when I was, I think, 15. And then I started a concert company when I was like 18. I, I loved music and uh, and we produced the first hip hop concert at Lincoln Center, which got a lot of press. And I was 18 years old and that was, you know, the coolest thing in the world I could think of doing. And uh, and it was really like, you know, just that seeing, you know, that at a massive scale and then trying stuff at a really small scale that it kind of never left me. And it was like, OK, like entrepreneurship for me is, you know, is what I want to do with the rest of my life. I want to build stuff. I want to build 
organizations. I want to make things that that don't exist in the world, and uh, and that's kind of how I got how I got started. And do you think that the that a big trigger for you, or maybe like that inspirational moment, was being able to work with someone like Bloomberg and and really understand that that it's possible to do that for you? Yeah, family. exactly. I mean, like I was the youngest person at the company, and it's a big company, and I was, I was definitely not you know making doing anything very important, but. Right. But yeah, exactly. Just to be able to see that was was inspiring and, and really, I think, set me on a journey that I've basically been chasing ever since. So obviously, in your case, you go to, to school. So you went to Vanderbilt and, and you studied economics there. And then I guess, you know, like as a result of that, you know, you, you, you went into Wall Street, into, you know, doing investment banking. Yeah. So, so why, why do you think it took you so long? And, and we're going to talk about, you know, Ro, which is your, your baby now, but but why? Why? Why did you take that route versus maybe like going at it and starting your your own company? Yeah, I mean, I thought about it. I think my perspective was I, I felt like I I had a lot to learn, um, and, I, and I wanted to, you know, I was just, I'm just like a naturally curious person. Like I think, you know, almost every entrepreneur is. And so for me, uh, I, I studied economics in college. I I found it fascinating. You know, you're basically trying to distill why do people do what they do, whether it's a single person or a group of people, you know, as like a country or something into math, which I thought was just really cool. And I actually, I actually really liked it and I wanted to apply it. So I was like, OK, like, uh, well, finance seems like a place to apply that. Also, just like a great place to learn about the world. I felt like there was so much out there and it's such a great lens to look at stuff from, you know, if he isn't coming out of college, going into investment banking, yeah, it's brutal. You know, you're working, you know, 100 plus hours a week. But uh, but you're seeing, you know company after company, you know, publicly listed companies, private companies, whatever. And like, you have to like learn about them really fast, understand their industry, understand what they do, you know, if it's M&A deal, understand how company A plus company B add, add up to, you know, more value than the two of them together or separately. And so I felt like that was, that was awesome. It was just like a great way to really broaden your horizons and, and see, you know, everything. I mean, again, when you're 18, like music is like the world and then you're like, oh, well, like, okay, like actually there's a much bigger world out here. And so... So I did that for a couple of years and then, uh, and I did it like from, it was 2007, 2008. So 2007, it's a great financial crisis. We were super busy doing lots of, lots of deals and financial engineering, stuff like that. 2008 was really depressing, you know, lots of pitching, nothing closing. And I was really fascinated by that too, because I was kind of perplexed. You know, there were a lot of people that were calling for the, the crisis uh, for, for a couple of years prior with pretty good evidence of why that was going to happen. And, and I looked around me and there actually weren't that many people, maybe a couple of people at the firm I worked at that, that saw it coming, but definitely very few, right? Most people like were, were blindsided by it. And I was like, huh, like, why is it the case? And who were the people that actually got this right? And, and it was, you know, by and large, it was like macro hedge fund managers that got it right. Those are really the only people that made money, you know, 2000, 2008, you know, people like Peter Thiel and, you know, Liz Bacon and Stan Druckenmiller, these guys are legends. Uh, you know, Peter was running his, his hedge fund at the time. And I was like, I want to, you know, I want to know more about that. I want to like figure out what those guys know and, and, you know, how they think about the world. And because it's very different than the, the people I'm sitting around at the, the table with today. And so I kind of embarked on a journey and I thought it would be like two or three years and I'd go do something else. It ended up being 10 because I really loved it. Um, I loved markets. I love trading. I think it's, it's, you know, it is one of the most, if not the uh, entrepreneurial jobs, you know, prior other than actually building a company, you, know, you basically have to think two steps ahead of the market, think two, two steps ahead of the competition, the most competitive job in the world, in my opinion. And, it, and it's just like a constant sort of game of chess, which is, which is cool. Parts of those are transferable to startups, in my opinion. Parts of them are not. 
for sure. Yeah. Like, you know, you're not building a, a people organization and you're not, uh, you know, building something that's bigger than your, you know, kind of like basically trailing PL. But it definitely teaches you how to think really, really rigorously and figure out what other people are missing. Because ultimately, it's maybe not a totally a zero sum game, but you know, it's but there's uh, you know there's winners and losers for sure. So spent about ten years doing that. I was an analyst, um, part of uh, uh, was at SEC Capital for a little bit, which is now Point Seventy Two. Worked at a couple of other funds, helped lead research, and then and then uh, ran a small portfolio. And then realized that like it was for me, it was like okay, I'm I'm still missing, you know, that feeling that I had when I was eighteen when I started, you know, when I was starting these little companies that you know didn't really we're you know me and two friends really what was the feeling it you know is that feeling of 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 sort of achievement and of building something and of, of sort of giving something back right it's like you know making something like inevitably you know i always talk to our team and and, and in general and it's like creating you know extracting value is not that hard what's hard is like creating value right creating value for people building a product a service something that, that people love and, and i really wanted to do that uh, with my life. And so, uh, left the hedge fund world, didn't know what I was going to do. Um, knew I wanted to build something, uh, in, in the tech world, uh, and was fortunate enough to meet my co-founder Alex around the same time. And he was leaving a, um, chief product officer role at a, at a pretty large, uh, tech company in the UK. Um, he had done that a couple of times. He had built and sold several businesses. And it was really fortunate timing because basically, you know, he was like, fintech is really the thing. It's really interesting. There's so much to do here. This feels like it was like ad tech, you know, 10 years ago where there was just this wide open world of, of uh, opportunity and, and, and ability to make a huge impact uh, on the market. And I was like, well, I don't necessarily know a ton about building product organizations, uh, but I do know a lot about finance. And, uh, and so the two of us basically teamed up and, and started going. And that was that was three years ago. You know, fast forward to today, you know, Row just continues to scale, and uh, and we've been able to, you know, we believe deliver that that product and experience that we dreamed of, which was was revolutionizing sort of basically commercial banking and and and, and payment management for for companies. And how do, how do you guys land on that? Because I mean, obviously, you guys, you know, really knew that fintech, you know, was was an area where where you could have an impact. But obviously, you know, the 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 word fintech it can can really you know. Um, group so many different things together. So why, out of all things, you know, you landed on on the banking, you know, aspect of it? Yeah, I mean, it's a really big space for sure. And, uh, and you can just see the amount of, you know, venture capital dollars going into the space. And yet, still, like how small a percentage of the overall financial services market is actually, you know, managed by or absorbed by companies that, you know, kind of people would call fintech. We landed on this because we believe that there was two things. One, like, was and like, the way I think about stuff is generally top down. The way Alex thinks about stuff is generally bottom up, and it's important to have both. Um, both are equally important. I was like, look, there's this. You know, we saw all these consumer fintech startups over the previous ten years, and I would say, like, you know, 2008 to 2018 or so, it was all consumer, right? It was companies like Chime, PayPal, some B2B stuff like Square, but um, but it was primarily primarily the applications in, in their work for consumer. And we believe that there was there were a couple of reasons why that was the case. And we believe those reasons were not necessarily valid going forward. So we believe that some of the sort of financial, regulatory, and tech models that companies like, like Chime used actually had really good applications in, in B2B, and, and people had not explored those yet. We also knew from, from Alex's personal experience, as well as just 
you know, discussing with like the, the market basically that there was just a tremendous amount of pent up demand, that companies needed better solutions, that everybody was tearing their hair out because of how difficult it was to like manage their employees spending, you know, how many products these companies were stacking to basically accomplish relatively simple goals. So all these companies that we talked to, you know, they're all stacking four or five, seven products, basically to allow their team to spend money safely, uh, store it somewhere and account for it. And that, that to us was, we understood why that was the case because the previous 10 years was all about unbundling banking. Um, but fundamentally, we, we knew that people wanted like a single user experience and we, know, we knew that they wanted just like an easier solution. And, you know, my partner had always dealt with Silicon Valley Bank as, as his partner or as his bank uh, at all his previous companies that in and of itself created a lot of issues. And we just believe we could solve them. So then what ended up being the business model of Raw? I mean, how and, and Raw R-H-O for those that are listening. That's right. What's the um, H is silent? Yeah. How, how, how do you how do you how do you guys make money here? What, what, how does how does it work? Yeah. So we work with companies primarily twenty to three hundred employees, and it's generally we're not their first bank account. We're not like a startup bank, but we do work with you know high growth companies. And because we serve companies that are doing like large scale and large volume, you know, we're able to basically offer a no fee product to those companies, back it up with phenomenal service, support, and pricing. And, uh, and technology that basically helps them move faster. And we monetize that product a couple of different ways. All those ways are basically indirect to the customer, but primarily through net interchange in a couple of their spaces. And in terms of, you know, because, because when you are in a regulated space like this one, you yeah. know, it's a, it costs a lot of money to get started. So, I mean, how, how, how much capital have you guys raised today? Uh, we've raised 30 million to date in equity and another 100 million of debt. And it is intensive. We have a lot of, you know, a lot of lawyers. We try to do things right. I think we have a um, compliance team of like five or six right now. And that's, that's growing really fast. Yeah, it's, it is a highly regulated space. Uh, there's a lot of, a lot of things that are confusing about the space. Uh, again, anybody that is starting in this space, I just recommend getting really, really good legal counsel early on. It'll save you time and headache later on. But there, there's also pretty established models at this point. And, and we feel like it was, you know, very, there, there is a right way to do, to do this, and we believe we're doing it. And why that approach of, of equity and debt? I mean, why, why did you guys um, you know, go that route, and what's the difference between one another, and how do you blend both to make it work? I mean, equity funds your operating business, right? our team, our employees, all that stuff. Debt is what goes behind our, our corporate charge card. Um, so when you spend on a row card, you know, a couple of days later, basically that lands in a, in a warehouse, in a special purpose vehicle, which has a warehouse facility. Uh, again, this is like fairly standard for, for the credit card industry. It wouldn't make sense to finance that on balance sheet. It would be a not very good use of, of equity capital, but investor capital. So yeah. uh, it allows you to scale much faster and gain access to you know basically infinite capacity, um, which is what we did. Got it. So I mean, basically equities for 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 having people on the long run, you know, really, you know, supporting the vision and realizing and the and the debt is more for the operations and and for making the business, you know, have the lights on pretty much. That's right. That's amazing. So so I guess uh, in this case, you know, like when you guys, I mean, because you you were you were both very sophisticated. I mean, obviously your your co-founder he had done a bunch of business before. You've done investment banking and also investing in companies, so you had a good idea of what, you know, to do and maybe what not to do when it came to raising money. So why did you choose the people that you chose, you know, on, on when it came to really bringing them on as equity partners? And, and what was that journey like? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, very early on, we, we learned a lot about it. And I, 
happy that we, you know, we made, you know, we got really lucky, frankly, with really phenomenal investors. You know, the things we looked for, and again, when people ask me, I apologize about the noise. I'm, yeah, we're, uh, we're based here in Soho in New York. Uh, I'm on the sixth floor of our building, but New York is loud. And oh, yeah. <laughs> New York City is loud. You know what? People really, you know, like uh, come to terms with noise in, in New York City. And it's funny because when you get out and you start, you know, like hearing the birds singing and stuff like that, you know, it's like so, so weird. So, um, so yeah, so <laughs> for right. the people that are, that are tuning in, I mean, it's a... Uh, is very loud the city, so um, so yeah. So so obviously you have you have great investors. Uh, I mean, why don't you give us like who are like the the three that you think you know people are going to recognize the most? You know, even though you have great great ones, but who would you say are the most recognized three ones? I mean, we, yeah, we definitely don't don't pick favorites. We have a, a number of phenomenal investors. They all bring uh, you know amazing skills and and assets to the table in terms of uh, you know, and they're all very dedicated towards helping us you know, scale our business. A couple of the ones that, that, that people uh, that have led our rounds so that people know really well yeah, is, uh, you know, Inspired Capital, Torch Capital, M13. And then there's there's a lot more that, you know, I uh, probably don't need to go into a laundry list of. But the, you know, overall, our our whole cap table and our, all of our investors have been great because, you know, some of them are ex-operators. Some of them are, are pure investors. They all look at the market a bit differently, but they all deeply understand that this is a space that is very large. It is at very early innings, and there's like just a tremendous amount of innovation that that we can deliver to this market that we believe will, you know, substantially help the trajectories of the companies that that we work with. And uh, and that's the only thing we care about is that um, how do we make ourselves mo most helpful, most useful, you know, to the companies that are on row from technology, you know, down to everything else, so that they can build phenomenal businesses themselves. And in this case, I mean, when you're doing the A round, I mean, it's, it's, it's without a doubt probably the toughest one right now because it's when you are going into the institutional world, you know, when it comes to accepting right. money. So so what was that process like of uh, of really securing that lead investor? I'm sure it was quite painful. It, it wasn't painful, but it was, we did learn a few things for sure. I, and I'm really happy with the way it turned out. I think, you know, we've had phenomenal partners that, you know, share a vision and, you know, are backing us for the long run. I think in terms of, that process, we did learn a few things. Uh, number one, even if it's COVID and, uh, you know, this is last year now, about a year ago, don't try to raise around in August. Uh, everyone told me that. <laughs> and we were like, well, maybe this year will be different. And, you know, yeah. it's uh, people will go on vacation and, you know, nobody's going on vacation, nobody's traveling, they're just at home. So why would August be different than July or June? Don't raise around in August. We spent a month of just wasting our time. And then September went in and it was like, all right, like, let's go. Uh, so that was a learning. The other thing was, I would say the best conversations that we had, uh, and we, we had a lot of conversations that our, you know, and our existing investors were phenomenal in terms of helping us, um, you know, introduce us to some of the right people that were interested. But the best conversations that we had really came from our founder friends and people that said, Hey, like I have this fund on my cap table. They're, you know, one of, if not my favorite investors, I think they would be great for you. And it was this, you know, so it's like never don't neglect those, those personal relationships matter, building those relationships with your with your peers, as well as with, with investors, you know, even if you're not pitching, like don't pitch before you're ready to pitch, but but get to know people, right. And, and that was something that I think, you know, was, was really valuable. So we could come in and, you know, have context, you know, it's not, uh, and, and basically just tell our story. And, those were probably the the three things for us that were that were, you know, that I tell other founders when when they ask me. Um, and a, yeah, A is a tricky phase for sure because uh, you have a 
business that is working, but you are still, you know, fundamentally subscale, right? And you really need to, you know, now put the people around it. You know, founders are still doing sort of too much at that phase, right? You, everybody has too many jobs. And so it's like, okay, you know, we need to raise a, a fairly substantial round so that we can, you know, take what is just basically a product and build an organization and a company around it. And that requires some vision from, from the other side. They have to understand, you know, what, what that can look like, that what that will look like. And um, again, I'm really happy with the investors that we got and, uh, and we've been able to, you know, to, to, to achieve that, which is awesome. Um, you know, today we're around 70 people um, and just continuing to grow really fast. So I guess in, in that regard, I mean, you know, as we're thinking about raw and then also like where the, where the trends are heading, you know, I mean, I, the other day I read that in 10 to 15 years, you know, banks, the way that we know them, you know, they're, it's just not going to exist anymore. You know, it's just like all types of innovation hitting everywhere. Where do you think hints, hit, things are, are heading as a whole? I think that's right. I mean, I think that, I think that the banking world is, uh, is starting to understand that. And I think that there is, uh, a lot of ability to partner with, with great financial institutions. We've had great bank bank partners. So I think the ones that get that realize that like, look, it's not a, you know, they don't have to compete with us. They can partner with us and, and we can win together. I think the second thing is they, uh, and every, I think everybody realizes, and this is true, not just in fintech, but in every business, right? You know, the buyer, the, the customer, what they care about first and foremost is like working with great technology, working with products that make their lives easier, right? They don't want to be taken out to lunch once, a, twice a year or, you know, get a bunch of like airline miles that are like not that useful. They just want products that help them get their, get on with their day and build their companies. Uh, and the only way you do that is by delivering great technology um, that is smart, that is thoughtful, that is simple, um, that that helps them do that. And, you know, as companies scale, like these problems just compound. You have more people, you know, you don't know what they're doing. You don't know where they're spending, but you don't want to slow them down. You don't want to build a company of 100 with a finance team of 20 necessarily. So how do you do more with less? And I think that job really like, you know, sits with financial service. I think historically, there's been a lot of like pure software solutions that have that have done parts of this lifting. Um, but I don't think you can truly solve the problem unless you are, you know, top to bottom. And so that's what we've tried to achieve. So so when we're thinking about also where things are heading and, and the future, I mean, imagine that you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world five years later. I mean, tremendous news. And you wake up in a world where the vision of Raw is, is fully realized. What does that world look like? I don't know if we're ready to share the, the the full vision, but I think, you know, I think parts of that, what that looks like, you know, is we just continue to have, you know, every, every high performing company in the world is, is, is using row. And, and we think that like, you know, fundamentally, like, what is that, what does that allow companies to do? Right. It allows them to take their finance teams, you know, all the way up to CFOs and remove them from like lower, you know, repetitive type work, checking controls, stuff like that, and really lets them focus on what really they're hired to do, which is to think about the strategy of that business, to think about, you know, where are we going to raise our next round? What KPIs do we need to hit? Like stuff that they actually, you know, they, those, those, those folks are, are, are paid to do. We think today a, a substantial amount of their time, and in some instances, almost all their time, depending on the company, is really spent doing work that can be simplified. You know, that is a, a forever goal. It is a job that will never be done, but it is something that we can keep chasing uh, and making tons of progress towards. So those companies can deploy their resources smarter. And as a result, 
grow faster. Nice. So um, imagine that I'm putting you into a time machine now and I'm bringing you back in time to that moment where you were discussing with your buddy, you know, maybe like doing something, uh, doing, doing the event at the Lincoln Center or, you know, starting a company of your own and, and you're able to go back in time and, and, and sit that younger, you know, Everett down and, and, and say, hold on, hold on. You know, here's one piece of advice before launching your company. What, what would that be and why based on what you know now? I mean, I think it would be, you know, I think I probably would have started earlier, but I think it's, I think it's like to not be afraid of stuff, right? As long as you're not stubborn, you know, something's not working, don't keep doing it. Um, but, you know, the, the upside is always so much greater than the downside. Um, and you can figure stuff out, you know, the, like, it, it's about that, right? It's about constant experimentation, constantly trying stuff, uh, build more stuff, launch more things even if they don't work, uh, you know, just, just, just keep going. And I think the earlier you start at that, um, the more, you know, later in life chances you have of building like a, a truly scaled and, and, and phenomenal organization. And so, yeah, that's, that's probably. And you, you were mentioning, you were mentioning there, Everett, that, um, that, you know, perhaps you wish you would have started sooner. So I guess in that regard to follow course, what would you say is a book that you wish you would have read sooner? I read I read a bunch of good books. I mean, look, I, I think I I really enjoyed my my journey, but I, but I do think just trying more stuff earlier would have uh, you know I, I would have would have always been good. In terms of books that like I that I recommend, uh, I mean, there's a couple that I that I loved, you know, about entrepreneurship. Like I, I love the Richard Branson story. It was you know he's just always been an inspiring figure to me. Um, uh, losing my virginity, right? It talks about him basically starting at age 16 and, and not looking back. Um, and that was, that was really, again, inspiring to me at, the, at reading that at around that age. You know, I also really find some of these stories about like industrial and telecommunications uh, founders that are maybe not as like high profile as like, you know, the sort of tech founders of today, um, but just built, you know, really interesting, phenomenal business. I really like the um, John Malone book, uh, Cable Cowboys, which that was just a, it's interesting to think that, you know, it's such a, it's such like a static business, right? You think about like Spectrum and, you know, all the other cable companies, these companies feel like they've been here for a thousand years and, you know, are gargantuan. And you realize that like, you know, in the 1970s and, and 80s, uh, it was just a couple guys like out there, you know, small businesses or small, you know, that, that grew up and then uh, bought each other and scaled up and, and, you know, and that that's now, you know, it's sort of just a utility. But back then it was a really entrepreneurial business uh, full of guys that took crazy risk uh, and 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 built like, you know, incredible legacies. And that was that was a cool um, that was a cool one. Uh, I also really like books about uh, about achieving peak performance. So, I mean, I, I read a lot of like sports, um, sports psychology books, um, you know, and that was true when I was uh, was on Wall Street as well, because I thought it was very applicable. Um, so there's a book called The Inner Game of Tennis that I think is uh, is a great read. Um, thinking about sort of mastery of self and you know how do I sort of you know find find sort of where I'm where I'm excellent and and you know push that further. Um, well, what's so, yeah. the name of, of this last one? Very interesting. The Inner Game of Tennis. The Inner is Game what it's of called. Tennis. Very interesting. So it's good. It's about 100 pages. It's pretty easy. Pretty easy read. But it's uh, but it's really profound. That's and amazing, you know, and, and I think that that's a very true, you know, on, on how people, well, first and foremost, I think that uh, biographies are great because I find that even though it's probably at a different point in time, 
um, history repeats to a certain degree, and yeah. it's important to see how people, you know, really who they are in 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 terms of leadership with whatever they have in front of them. And then to what you were saying now, you know, I, I it reminded me a little bit too of the of 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 the documentary of uh, Michael Jordan, The Last Dance, yeah, and how that was great. yeah, the, the the leadership approach too, and how that can also be applied to business. So so really good stuff, Everett. So I guess for people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Uh, so come come visit us at row r h o dot c o, and we'd love to help you, especially if you're a, a growing business. You know, we can uh, you can chat with our team and and we can tell you more. Amazing. Well, Everett, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Thank you so much. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.